This is episode 20 with Stephen Martin on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. Hey tribe, welcome back to another episode of Ancestral Health Radio. I know I've let you down the past month with delivering consistent interviews, and I'd like to first apologize before I get into today's show with my new friend Stephen Martin. If any of you are my friends on Facebook, well then you know that on May 2nd I officially quit my job to go full-time in pursuing my passion with AHR. And I'd just gotten back from a transformative trip to Washington to spend some time with a mentor of mine, Frank Fornsich, but when I had returned, something was off and I didn't know exactly what it was, but I just kind of knew. You know, something was different than before. And basically, I felt like my presence and my knowledge as an ancestral health coach and practitioner had finally been validated by my peers. I had something valuable to offer, and all I needed to do was go out there and get it. So when I came back, I realized this is so non-congruent to who I am. I love the guys there. And guys, if you're listening, you're so awesome to work with. I mean, it, it... It's an easy place to get stuck there because of the environment. It's so easy to just kind of fall into being okay with being okay. And that wasn't setting right with me. So I needed to take things into my own hands and I just made a split decision. Uh, There were some things that came up at work and I needed to make a decision for myself. Where was I going to be most successful? Was it going to be my day job? Where I spend eight hours a day within a confined space, four walls? No, that that definitely is not James the Hairless Ape Broderick. So I took it into my own hands again, and I just said that was enough. And I hope you support me in this. Um, It's a huge, scary, transformative experience for me, and I'm not sure exactly what I'm doing. And now it's just, you know, it's not like any of my problems are gone. Now, I'm forced to create something for you guys so that I can keep the podcast going. And really, that's that was my plan the entire time. But I just want to let you know that I appreciate your support and all of you out there messaging me, all of you out there sharing the episodes, all of you actually participating in any of the challenges that I'm giving you, congratulations. And I just want to let you know that you're my friend and that I want to develop this relationship between us more. So thank you for being here with us. And without further ado, here is episode 20, episode 20, guys, of Ancestral Health Radio with my friend Stephen Martin, the Sacred Gardener. Stephen Martin has more than 30 years experience living co-creatively with the earth, practicing traditional living skills of growing food, building, and healing. Stephen created Livingstone and Goldblum in 1986, Toronto's first green landscaping company. In 1996, he created the Algonquin Tea Company, North America's premier bioregional tea company. Stephen has given talks and runs workshops internationally for more than 20 years and has taught at Algonquin College since 2000. In 2014, Megan and he started the Sacred Gardener Earth Wisdom School. Stephen released his first book, The Story of the Madawaska's Forest Garden, in 2016. Sacred Gardening will be released in May 2017. Stephen, welcome, and thank you for joining us on another exciting episode of Ancestral Health Radio. Well, hi, James. Thank you. Well, it's always nice to have a... (laughs) Go ahead. No, no, please. What is it nice to have? Well, I was just going to say, I'm not much for introducing myself, especially at, you know, first thing in the morning. It's kind of like, well... (laughs) Most definitely. You know how it is. But you know what? I like, you know, this is just uh, the great thing about the podcast, and I like telling everybody is uh, I think why people are so drawn to these shows. 
and these type of conversations is because it is so casual that you and I can really just sit down and kind of have what I like to call a fireside chat. So that's what this is all about. And I think you have a really unique story and a very uh, unique perspective that you can bring to the ancestral health slash rewilding table. And I thought maybe you could open that up for us and just give us some of your background as to kind of where you got to where you are today. Oh, yeah. Here's another one of those <laughs> big, very broad yeah, questions. Yeah, I know. Which avenue do you want to take? I, a little bit uh, in awe of, of uh, kind of how to answer it, but I can I can take a crack at it. You know, I think a lot of it really started from the same place where we all start, which is this place of disillusion with our culture and um, lack of groundedness. And so it's kind of from that place of, of deficit that a lot of us seem to start our search for things, you know? Absolutely. And I had a strong connection with nature, you know, I was brought up with it. And my grandfather in particular really connected me in with the natural world and the trees. And so I think in that time, you know, late teens and feeling very lost in the world, I think the only place where I actually felt at home was in the woods, you know, in the forest. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I think a lot of us have that feeling, you know. There's a whole, well, there's a whole movement, the whole preservationist movement that really started in the 1800s as a kind of reaction to the industrialization that we were all getting subjected to really started back then. So I think that's, um, uh, well, I won't say typical, but it's not unusual in any way to kind of feel those things. Now, maybe where it gets a little bit uh, different is for me, um, I felt a really strong, <clears throat> and again, my, my grandfather was a farmer and, you know, he used to graft fruit trees and stuff in our backyard. So I okay, grew up so with, you grew up with some of this knowledge. Yeah. I grew up with crab apple trees that bear these beautiful, gorgeous apples, you know, and hmm. this mystery that this older man had been able to do was just haunting to me as a kid <laughs> like how could you do that how you know and i i'm sure i didn't figure it out for about 15 years or something like i didn't learn about grafting unfortunately till after dave mcmaster my grandfather was gone but um and grafting know, those for those of us who who are unfamiliar with that what exactly <clears throat> is grafting well it's taking uh a bud or a tip from one tree that you like the fruit of and putting it on another tree mm -hmm. that is the same genus that you don't necessarily like the fruit of. Basically, that's that's it. And it's a really old, ancient thing. I mean, we've been doing it at least 4,000 years or something. So, And it's how we pretty much got all of our fruit trees and a good part of our nut trees, and they're all grafted. So... It's actually quite a basic technique. But just to say that, you know, it's those seeds, I think, maybe that people put in you when you're younger that, you know, later as time passes, something else comes along and awakens them and waters them a little bit. And then suddenly, you know, you're up and running just like a plant. And so that was kind of the way it was with me was... Um, lots of years of struggling and then when i really did kind of feel like i was at my wits end with this culture and society I kind of backed off into the woods for about four years and lived really intensively and you know with the help of some elders and some books taught myself how to forage taught myself how to live off the land what were you doing and then um what were you doing back Second. then exactly? What what exactly made you have that feeling where you felt like you needed to return to the woods? What what kind of uh, lifestyle were you living back then? Well, you know, like any teenager, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Gotcha. Basically. Okay, well, I'm very familiar you with know, that. Right. And I'd, I'd um, you know, I had some friends who were in their 30s at the time, and these guys were still living in basements and watching TV yeah. and smoking their brains out all day. And I kind of went, uh-oh, this is, this is where I'm headed. <laughs> right, this is you know, not so, the direction I want to be going. 
Yeah, among other lots of other wake up calls, that was kind of one of them. Was just realizing that uh, that was an end in itself, and that some people never kind of move beyond that. You know, okay. and that all comes back to lack of initiation right. and lack of guidance from elders. And, and whose teachings so did you? Lucky. Whose teachings did you latch onto in the beginning? Then uh, you know who really kind of fostered that that idea that maybe you should be. Um, reconnecting yourself with nature? Well, you know, there wasn't too many things, but uh, one of the books certainly was Black Elk Speaks. Black um, Elk Speaks, It's a okay. real, real classic. And, uh, you know, Black Elk was somebody who lived in uh, 1800s, and he was a chief, and, you know, he... he uh, he had these kind of um, proclamations, I suppose, that he would put to the government. And he was kind of the one that, you know, that really famous quote about, you know, when the birds and the animals and all these things disappear, basically that'll be the end for us too, mm -hmm. you know. Okay. So anyways, it's just an incredible book. I'll post then, that in the show uh, notes more. for people in case they're interested in looking further into it. And if you're interested, yep. uh, you can go to www.ancestralhealthradio.com forward slash podcast forward slash sacred gardener. Yeah, and Wallace Black Elk, who I'm not sure if Wallace has passed away now or not, but he was his great great grandson, and he's also quite an amazing writer. Um, at the time, this was in the early 80s, there was this guy, Sunbear, who was actually out from closer to where you live. I'm not sure if Sunbear is around either, to tell you the truth, but he had written a few kind of survival, very basic, thin little survival books, how to trap, how to create shelter, how to make a fire from scratch, uh, basic kind of traditional skill stuff, and that was definitely a Bible. You that know? was kind of your, your um, gateway, huh? Yeah, for moving back into that space, and then... You know, the, the more I moved into that world, the more it opened up for me. And and I realized, you know, that this was my place. And mm -hmm. and then it's a whole other story of kind of what brought me out of the bush. Because, of course, if it was, if that was the end of things, then I wouldn't be talking to you and I'd still exactly. be living yeah. back in the smoke there. But, you know, I think there is a time... Uh, there's a time for kind of collecting information and there's a time for digesting it. And then there's a time for moving forward and actually doing something yourself. Thank you. And these yes. are all phases in our life, you know, mm -hmm. and if we have elders, then they can tell us, Oh, you're in this phase, you know, but this is what's coming up. And, you know, it'd be a real good thing to know instead of having to hack your way through like most of us do. Yeah. But I'm kind of at a place now where, um, you know, the teaching is coming very easily, and a lot of those lessons that I, I, you know, were kind of ground into me by doing this stuff for a couple decades, uh, I'm, I'm able to talk about it, not just how to do things, but where we lost it, and how to get it back, and, and all those things around the skills, because, you know, I was teaching and just really focused on traditional skills and gardening and things for a lot of years. But in the last few years, I've kind of come to this other place where I realize there's very few people who are talking about why we need to do these things, when we lost it, how that all happened. And it's incredibly important because when you have those things to kind of um, touchstones, you know, uh, of mm -hmm. knowledge to kind of go, okay, we really did lose it, you know, after yeah. the Second World War, industrialization or whatever. Just having that history is really important, you know, and I don't think there's too many people who are teaching it. So No, and what is I'm that? Do you, do you know that famous quote? I mean, you just brought up a, a quote in my mind, and I, I can't remember if it was Churchill or not, but uh, it was something, and I may butcher this, by the way, but it was something along the lines of uh, those who fail to learn history are doomed to repeat it. And yeah. that, that's exactly what that rang true to me. And also, while you were speaking, I, I just wanted to t let you know, and I like just showing my gratitude for my guests um, as much as possible, and especially for what you said earlier, is that, you know, 
about mentors and about elders. I feel like, um, and my, my friend Daniel Vitalis also echoes this, that there's a lack of elders these days. You know, we're, we're growing up, at least my generation is growing up with, um, you know, a bunch of kids, I, I feel like, you know, and um, a lot of people aren't fully maturing into these elders who can teach these type of arts to people like myself who really have that burning desire to learn. So I just want to thank you and celebrate you just for a moment for doing the work that you do, Stephen. So thank you very much for that. Oh, thanks, James. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it, it actually, again, with these different kind of stages in our life, it becomes something that you don't really even have much of a choice about. I mean, this whole idea that we have choices all along is a bit of an illusion. And I think as you get older, it becomes clearer and clearer that, you know, if you want to live a certain way or up, you know, embody a certain ethic or something, then you have no choice. You have to do what you do. And, you know, I have to do what I'm doing. I, I'd probably rather just stay at home and garden and make baskets and do my <laughs> handwork and stuff. Right. But, you know, there's a, a whip cracking behind me, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not my wife. <laughs> it's, it's the spirit, right? And the spirit's saying, no, you know, you've been given all these gifts. You get out there and mm -hmm. you share them, right? It's your duty. Or they'll be taken away because that's the way it kind of works with that stuff, right? If you don't use it, you lose it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so tell me more about this lost knowledge and exactly exactly what you want to tell people about it. You know, what is so important about this? How have we lost it? Go into a little bit more of that. Tell us a little bit about what we need to be knowing about making this kind of transition, because that's what it sounds like, that you're in that transition zone where you're you're in between worlds. You're, you kind of have one foot there in the... Um, I mean, what, what would you call exactly you, what you do, your style of gardening? It's not permaculture, is it? Well, you know, I can call it wild culturing, or I could call it sacred gardening. Sacred gardening, let's call it that. Yeah, sure. And and really what that's about is reforming that relationship, that sacred relationship with the earth. And it's such an easy thing to say, and maybe people even grasp it, but let's back up a little bit. I mean, the truth is, we lost this sacred relationship with the earth somewhere between three and five thousand years ago so at the rise of civilization and warrior king culture warrior king mythology all that kind of mother goddess relationship stuff got pushed underground right um, i won't say it's disappeared because i think there's aspects of it that have always kind of remained there tendrils but uh for the most part um, we shifted to this warrior king mentality and it's all about conquest and mm -hmm. dominion and all these things and people don't even realize that there was another history like I've had people say to me like this is just human nature and I'm like well no. where are you getting that from yeah, and, yeah. and they well look at the Greeks I hear that all like, the time that that seems to be a the default Greeks answer are a, a drop in the bucket that's only a few years ago we've been around arguably for 500,000 years in roughly this form that we have now Yeah I believe my friend Peter the Michael Greeks Bauer just a few thousand Peter Michael Bauer said that uh, conquerors are the ones that write the history books so right so um, it, it's interesting because well, yeah there's like a whole different side that uh, people don't understand from the indigenous culture perspective, right? Well, for sure. And the fact that we are indigenous people, it's just this very, very thin veneer of civilization that is covering everything that gives us the illusion that we're not. Mm -hmm. Of course we are. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those skills and that kind of intimate relationship with the earth. That's what got us to this place then we've just been exploiting these gifts that our ancestors gave us from five, six, seven, eight, nine thousand years ago mm -hmm. when agriculture and these things were developed. And agriculture and dominion over the earth are not synonymous. This is one of the other things I'm teaching is that 
because of the way agriculture is done now in this industrial age, we see it in this certain light that's very destructive and very negative. But of course, when we developed agriculture as indigenous people, it wasn't that way. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to reintroduce in my books and, and my thoughts is that this sacred relationship's been lost, but then if you follow the history along, more recently, 1800s and then 1950s, even our secular relationship with the earth has been lost now. Mm. So now people don't have any relationship with the earth. Yeah, there is. No, and that's why. You yeah, know, I just no, love no that real, word. There is no relationship whatsoever, no story behind our not food. Not really. That's right. And, and behind, behind your day, you know. Most of us don't get up when the sun rises. We get up when the alarm clock goes off. And that's just a small difference in the two ways of living, right? We don't go to bed when it gets dark. We stay up and watch Netflix or something, right? Like it's in every way the circuitry has been broken down. Right. You know, last time we were briefly speaking about um, doing humanure and just different things oh, that yeah. are completing, completing the circuit. Mm-hmm. This is the thing is so even to recover a bit of a secular relationship where you're growing some of your own food or maybe you're handcrafting something so you have to go out and and um, cut some willow branches to make baskets or something. These are all ways that you're reconnecting, you're, you're reinitiating a relationship with the earth, right? So this is what we teach at the school here, the Sacred Gardener School. And it's, you know, it's essential because just being green and having rules around consumption and use of the land, it's not going to get us there. It's not it's enough. It's not going to get us. No, no it's, it's not. It's enough. not. It's just kind of like, um, <laughs> it, it's just being stagnant. You're not doing anything to help further, you know, um, you, you might be stopping a small portion of what you're doing, a, making a small impact in what what you're doing and it might be an impact a huge impact to you in your perspective however as a whole yeah. unless you're making a difference and seven billion people on this planet need to kind of have a same mentality as you you better be making a, a you know kind of a, a large effort here if you want to be really putting a foot forward well that's it i mean it's it's all great and stuff having having less of a ecological footprint i think that's really important it's nice too, to stroke but, your ego for sure yeah and and to protest people who are doing the opposite is also great but you have to do it yourself right you have to form these relationships in a positive way you know and you see this with uh protesters and social activists all the time where you can only do that stuff for so long and then you just burn out because there's no grounding in it and you're always just reacting to this other thing. And in reacting in a, in a certain way, you're actually giving it energy. Mm-hmm. You know, you're almost better to just ignore that stuff, except for when it's right in your backyard. And then <laughs> move forward in your own way. Yeah. You know? So that's the thing. To, to find what you're interested in and find a way to move into it that will make a reconnection with the earth. You know? And that's when things start to change because when you start to realize a dependence, you know, so you become a fisherman or a gardener or a hunter or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you start having this very reciprocal relationship where you realize, ah, I can't take too much. I have to take it a certain way at a certain time for this to work. And then all the other factors that makes that thing abundant or not abundant you become painfully aware of suddenly when your existence is hanging, you know, on a thread from it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not like we all have to go completely back to the land. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we have to reform some of those secular relationships so that we can move into a deeper sacred relationship. How do we go about doing that, too, by the way? Like, if we wanted to start fostering a more conscious relationship with the land. I mean, I know it could be any number of things, but maybe something that you teach your students there. What 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 is one of the first things you, you like um, teaching there at the Sacred Gardener? How do you become more conscious, I don't know, steward of the land? Or how, how, however you want to say it, 
how do we begin this process of making that transition? Well, again, you know, it takes years. And if we start with something that's practical, Mm -hmm. then that's great. That's a good start because there has to be a whole bunch of mental deprogramming that happens. Oh, yeah. Maybe so we can we talk about that. So that we off our high horse. Yeah, we need to be brought down a few pegs, you know, so that we're feeling a little bit more humble about things. Because if you're coming into it from this top-down position, I don't know if you ever really get there. There, there has to be something that humbles you, you know. And so living with nature and working with her is probably the best thing you can do to be hum- humbled. She'll teach you, right? She teaches yeah. you what to do. You you had mentioned something that I just think people might want to be aware of too, if they're not already aware of the program that you had mentioned to me before, but it was the WOLF program, am I correct? Um, what were you talking about? So it was the WOLF program or the WOOF program. It's where... Oh, um, WOOF. Wolfing, yeah, where you can basically donate your time. You just have to uh, basically have airfare to get wherever you're going. And there are certain sustainable farmers, rather, that are out there that will hold you up and you can kind of work in their space and they'll teach you how to do this um, in, in, for, for you being a volunteer and working on, on their space. Am I correct in, in saying that? Yep, yep. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's the thing is if you, I guess you're in an urban setting, yeah, this might be a good thing to do, you know, to, to kind of start this process. But until it's your crop that's failing and that that means, oh, okay. you know, you these days there. it doesn't mean you're going to starve, but it means you're going to pay for it in some way, then that's the kind of humility that when your life's on the line, when your food's on the line, it okay. has a whole different resonance than when you're dropping into somebody else's farm. And I didn't even think you know. about it that way. Because just so the audience knows, um, from from my personal perspective, I've never really grown anything. I don't have too much of a green thumb. I I have not done too much gardening. Just want to be upfront about that. So this is a you know still new to me, but I'm I'm very interested and I very much want to learn. So. I'm excited to have Stephen on talking about this. So when I'm when I'm you know kind of throwing these questions back and forth, it's really just I, I, I'm curious. I'm not exactly sure you know how all this works. So I, I just really want to want to understand this better. So uh, continue, Stephen, please. I'm I'm just really intrigued. So when you're in that place, you know you've been doing these practical things, and again, it doesn't have to be gardening. It could be something like tool making. Almost all of our utensils and everything's plastic. Everything's oil-based now in our whole culture. So mm. start kind of looking at your life and think of what you might be interested in making, furniture or baskets or, or oh utensils. That's so funny. Any I was just thinking things. about that too, um, <laughs> that I was thinking because we're doing this transition kind of culture and and you know not fully living off of the the land you know we're we're still kind of in that middle ground that maybe we should be promoting that idea of um some of the old skills not primitive skills but i'm going to call them old skills so something like blacksmithing for example or woodworking or um even even some of the skills that even your grandfather or your father knew that you, we no longer have uh, for example, you know, simple mechanic work, you know, things that are very, very practical. Sewing, for example, um, some of these type of skills, I feel like on top of the primitive skills are extremely necessary for building this type of transition culture, too. And I think is is that kind of what you're talking about, too, is, is essentially learning to become a maker again. Definitely. And so each one of those things would kind of bring you into a place of humility a little bit more. And then from that place, you can start to talk to the beings that you're interacting with, right? So if you're making something like a spoon or something, well, you need a piece of wood to make it. Well, Mm -hmm. don't go to the lumber store because you go to the lumber store, then you're just supporting this whole other industry that you probably wouldn't approve of if you knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. So instead, Go to a wood lot where they've been cutting wood already, or maybe just find a piece of a piece of standing dead wood or something that's still solid, and start from there. You know, offer it a prayer. 
in thankfulness. It doesn't matter whether it's alive or it's dead. You're taking from this wild place. Mm. So there has to be a certain amount of courting when you're going to take something from the bush. Oh, I like that. So, you know, appreciate it, see its beauty, be thankful for it. You know, you replace it with maybe a small thing. So you give a pinch of tobacco or you pull one of your hairs out or you leave a penny or you do something <laughs> where you're offering something back. Yeah, right, my friend Daniel, thing. again, just real quick to, to mention my friend Daniel Vitalis. He, um, so uh, a previous podcast episode of his, he had, uh, I believe he had taken the life of a, he's getting very much into hunting and he had taken the life of a bear and I believe he offered, because um, he thought, you know, tobacco, he's not a smoker, right? And it, he thinks kind mm -hmm. of, you know, that's not necessarily his tradition or culture. So he didn't want to kind of walk that fine line of cultural appropriation, right? Which we might want to talk about in a bit. But he said, sure. <clears throat> he was kind of funny about this. And he said on his podcast that, you know, something of equal or greater value to me was marijuana or cannabis. And so he had cannabis and he had sprinkled that and left that as a gift instead. And I was like, oh, well, that's clever, you know, and it had that same kind of symbolism and that same kind of, you know, reverence behind his offering. And it, it kind of really spoke to me, you know, and uh, just I really like that idea of giving something back. That's a really, really important aspect. I, I, I like that you teach that. Yeah, and something that hurts a bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you should, you should feel it a little bit, too. Okay. Right? Nothing that's too, too easy. Right. You know? You're not going to give back your spit or something. <laughs> okay, of course, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and, and this is the way it goes, is that so from these relationships you know, and, and kind of developing these things over time. Um, it's just like any relationship. It takes on a life of its own, you know? So this is the thing is the earth's waiting for us. She's mm -hmm. waiting just outside your door for us every day. All we have to do is be open to that waiting and come out and make some offerings, you know? And part of our offerings is just our emotions, you know, our feeling of gratitude, our feeling of love, our feeling of beauty that she holds for us. And when we can take that in, you know, there's there's a sharing that's going on. And um, so I think I think that's really what we're we're all trying to get back to that place. You know, mm. we just have to kind of start small and start slow. And, you know, I think there's there's something worth mentioning here. Just back up a little bit to the thing about elders, you know, is. Hey, guys, do you like what Stephen and I are talking about? Does sacred gardening really resonate with you? If you're nodding your head or saying yes, that's great because Stephen is offering 10% off either the story of the Madawaska Forest Garden or Sacred Gardener just for us, just for our, our, our little tribe here at Ancestral Health Radio. So if you head back to thesacredgardener.ca and you check out with this code, Sacred Gardener, pretty creative, right? You will get 10% off your purchase. So again, that is Sacred Gardener at discount, and you can purchase either the story of the Madawaska Forest Garden or Sacred Gardener so that you yourself can go further into this subject. Or, of course, you can always wait until I have Stephen on for another episode. This has been going on for 20, 30, 40 years, probably, this thing of not having elders. Mm -hmm. And it's not just that they're not there, it's that they've been shunned, mm. right? Like an earlier generation, I don't know if it was in the 60s it started or when exactly, but we rejected them you know, because of their way of life or because of certain things about them. But the truth is they still have tons of knowledge. It might not be about something as specific as, you know, tanning hides or doing something that we're interested in. Mm -hmm. They have life knowledge, you know, and just that, man, we should be bowing down to our elders. I know that, you know, we don't feel that much in our culture and I haven't, so it's one thing for me to be saying it, it's another thing to actually do it. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is as I'm getting older, I'm starting to have such an appreciation for everybody who's managed to make it to my age and past. You know what? You it's, know? it's funny that you say that because I grew up with my grandmother. And I, you know, I, 
I don't know if that's rare to people or if most people who grow up with their grandparents have the same type of feeling, but I have that type of reverence towards my elders. Like I have this very strong respect. Like I understand, like I felt like I kind of had a difficult, I mean, everybody has their challenges, right? I'm not going to, you know, single me out or anything, but you know, I felt like, damn, life is kind of difficult. Right. And, um, I felt like I had a kind of rocky upbringing and, you know, here I am today, but I have so much respect for my elders because, again, I was brought up by my grandmother, and I'm just like, man, she went through a lot. She has gone through, I mean, regardless of whether she's rewilding or on her ancestral health kick, which she most definitely is not, she, um, you know, she's a strong, proud um, woman, you know, and she has made it through all the way until, you know, she's she's um, yeah. 88 years and old, more, you know, more like, wow, that's sure. amazing. Yeah, and more than you'll ever know. Oh, right? so much life experience. We don't even, know. We don't Absolutely. even know our own parents. You know, I'm, I'm turning into one of those parents that maybe my kids won't even know. <laughs> you know so. But I think it is a rare thing, James, you know, and because you were brought up by, by some elders there that you, you have that. I think most people, it's just like, you know. I'm, I'm driving down the street and I see an elderly person on the side of the road you know, walking a shopping cart down the side of the street. And I'm like, what the heck is that person doing? You know, where's their family? You know, how come no one's taking care of them? And I, that's something I just, you know, just real quick, I like and I respect about Eastern cultures is that their family system or their family dynamic is very much, they take care of one each, each other uh, better than, than I would say we do here well, in again, the Western culture. So it, it's like the indigenous thing. It's, Every culture. It wasn't just Eastern or whatever. Okay. Everybody there we go. Did, yeah. Let's right? thank you for correcting me. So it was a way that. that we that we existed. And then um, you know, the cult of the individual and the whole um peer the peer alliance that we have, that's all kind of new stuff, really. And and yeah, and the nuclear family thing, all those things. I mean, they were an experiment in a sense, and you can see the way that they failed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Whenever that can happen, whenever that can happen, a multi-generational relationship, it's a good thing. You reach for it. Even if the person seems to not have much in common with you, guaranteed they have so much to teach you, so much more than your peers. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about what you do over there too, by the way, um, moving, I mean, I love the philosophy. We could just go on and on and talk about philosophy for a long time. And exactly what what we've lost, but unfortunately, we only have a certain amount of time that we can work with. But if you would like to yeah. come on, because it sounds like, it, in audience, please um, send me an email, james at ancestralhealthradio.com. If this is resonating with you at all, and you'd like Stephen back on for a repeat episode, for us to go deeper into this subject of sacred gardening and how we can realign our spirituality, I guess, with with Mother Earth. So I'm actually, you know what, screw that. I'm definitely having you back on to go deeper into this because I'm most certainly interested in it. So we're definitely going to schedule another interview for you, Stephen, for sure. But, you know, just for time's sake, let's move into what you actually have going on over there. Well, you know, if you think about these these ways that I'm interacting with the earth, right? Mm-hmm. It's not so different from things, certainly the other people up here, some other people back to the lander types up here around me are doing, you know, tapping trees for maple syrup or keeping bees or gardening um, or crafting, handcrafting things. I mean, these are all, you know, uh, very graspable things. Mm -hmm. I think there might be a difference just in the way that I'm thinking about doing it, though, you know, so... I have a property and it's got well probably two thousand or two to four thousand sugar maple trees, right? Mm. Now, if I wasn't really considering the energy of the forest and and the beings there and the trees themselves, I'd just tap all of them. I'd get that rubber tubing stuff, mm. miles and miles of it, and I'd tap them all and get a reverse osmosis thing, and you get a whole bunch of stuff going. But I would never do that because oh, okay. it would change my relationship with the forest. The way I do it is maybe 50 trees, between 50 and 100 trees, 
that gives my family more than enough syrup that we need for the year, you know, like 10 gallons kind of thing. And then we also make honey too. So we don't need to buy any sugar. Right. No, absolutely. And, you have nature sugar. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe I would turn that into a business, but I'd have to really consider it because I know it would change the nature of that bush. It would. And if it I would, did it. Yeah. It would kind of go against your whole, it would be non-congruent, right? <laughs> it would feel, I kind of get, I understand where you're coming from now. When you're talking about yeah, this, so it totally has that kind yeah. of like, ah, uh, that kind of gritty feeling. Like, I don't know if I want to do that, you know, because this is, again, sacred. Ah, I just really like that perspective. And it's so easy for us to fall into what I call the industrial ruts, right? Just <laughs> like a, a, um, a trail where there's deep ruts and you get pulled into it, your car gets pulled into it. The same thing happens to, with us. We want to do something like mm -hmm. maple syrup or garden or something like that or hunting or whatever. Yeah. And then we get pulled into all the industry of it, right? Because these things have all been made into huge industries. Oh, yeah. And it's so easy. As soon as you start Googling how to do this and looking things, there's always an easier way oh, that's and a way that's quicker and more efficient. And so we lean towards that. And then before we know it, We've just become another person exploiting the plant. <laughs> That's crazy. You know what? Uh, thank you for that. You just opened my eyes. Like, I didn't even think about it in that light. And, yeah, so, for example, for people out there, you're getting into hunting. You buy a bow. Next thing you know, you're you're not just buying a regular recurve or something for a couple hundred dollars. You're buying a, a compound bow, right, because you were told that, obviously, it's going to have a more precise shot. You're going to have more, yep. more, Probably uh, more force behind that arrow, right? <laughs> yeah, but then you're going to be like, okay, well, then I need this kind of sight to go on to this bow. I need, um, oh, wait, hold on. I need that shirt you know, that's over across oh, from the God, lobby yeah. where I bought my bow um, so that yep. I can you know, get in my full fatigue or my full camo gear, which, again, you're just yep. – you're following that cycle. I just, that's so, okay. So from coming from a domesticated point of view, you know, for me, you know, it's really eye opening to, to hear that kind of perspective. So for all of you, I hope that was kind of, um, uh, as, as, uh, eye opening for you as it was for me, because that's, um, that's interesting. And now I'm going to start purchasing things in a whole different light. That kind of falls into what Denby Royal and I were talking about with fast fashion, how, uh, things are just purchased, and just discarded, and it's creating this huge amount of waste that the the garment industry, or rather the textile industry or the fashion industry, is the second most largest polluting industry other than the oil industry in the world. So um, yeah. it's crazy. So any way that we can cut ties and get out of those industrial um, ruts, like Stephen is talking about, is uh, huge because, you know, it's compound effect right these little things done and, you over know that's it, for different reasons but that's exactly what gandhi was doing right in india by by reinitiating spinning your own thread and weaving your own clothing right then you just bypass that whole industry mm -hmm. now back in his days it was because of exploitation of the people but now we could do it for the same reason as exploitation of the land and the people, of course, because oh. all that cheap clothing is all made in China and all in India. Nasty and, yeah, we're just stuff. horrible things are happening. Horrible things. <clears throat> yep. Yep. And so every time you put on those things, you're endorsing that. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. Just like every time you buy a piece of industrial food, you're endorsing exactly. that thing. Mm hmm. Yep. If so, if you're upset about industrial farming or industrial agriculture, or you're, you're upset about where your meat comes from, you know, or how animals are treated, well, then there you go. You know, there's just another way of uh, figuring out how you can cut those ties, which is obviously go go to the farmer, go to the source, do it yourself. Yeah. DIY. Yeah. Put put your money where your mouth is. Say. Eh? Absolutely. And that's what we're trying to do here. So <laughs> slowly but surely, we're making that transition. It's interesting because, you know, I'm not sure where I want to go with this yet. You know, I don't know how far down the rabbit hole I'm going to go. I know that I want to make an impact and I want to kind of set an example for people. So I know I want to 
I want to go fairly deep, right? But I don't know how far. I, I just don't know whether or not I'm going to do any gardening at all. You know, like Daniel says, maybe I just have that bartering system, you know, that reciprocal gift economy where, you know, I do the hunting because it just seems um, more fun, you know, like for me, you know, going out on the hunt with the boys, doing that kind of thing, and then bartering with the people who are doing the agricultural work. Which it, I know it doesn't always have to be hard work, but it's more, um, I guess you have to be more sedentary, I guess. You have to stay in more of one spot, correct? Is that true? Would that be true? Because that, that's a question that I'm asking myself a lot I, I see recently is, am I going to be growing a garden and is it going to be holding me down? That's a thing that I want to know is, is growing a garden or starting my plot of land or starting a setup, is that going to really... I want to be held down to one spot. Let's get that clear. But I also want to have the freedom to kind of enjoy going other places as well. Is 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 that going to be a concern? Well, I, I think you kind of answered your own question there. Yeah. But yeah, you know, that's what we're looking for is to be held down. I know this whole thing of dependency and stuff is something that we really pushed away and we want to be independent, independent, but then... Yeah, see, you have it, no connections. To anything, very true. Right? It, it's okay. through, through the dependencies and through the enmeshment in things that we find our home and that we feel grounded in stuff. Okay, thank and you. And as for getting getting away, well, you know, hopefully you have some friends and maybe some other people living with you, and then they can watch the garden while you go away. Mm-hmm. But you know, the other thing about hunting is you have to know the land like your back, the back of your hand, to true, be a good right? hunter. You have to know exactly what the animals are doing. Every hill, nook, and cranny of the land, you have to know. So it's also a huge commitment. That's true. And, you know, hunting's just a few days a year for most of us. So you're going to have to do something with your time the rest of the time. See, thank you for that perspective, too. See, because I'm coming at this from a total beginner's, you know, viewpoint here. Because I haven't done these yet, you know, I just don't know what to expect. So for those out there also who are in my same position, I hope that you're you're also understanding what Steven is saying here that he's making a lot of really great points, by the way. Thank you for for those. Like you essentially need to be <laughs> rooted in the in in your sense of place. You need a sense of place because to do any of these things properly, you need an intimate knowledge of the land is essentially what you're saying. Well, this is it. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. And okay. And it speaks to me so much too. When you say that it, it like, um, it's very validating, I guess you could say, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm torn between these two worlds. So it's like one part of me, you know, still wants a foot, you know, like, ah, I'm still holding on to it, I guess you could say. Whereas the other part is desperately like trying to let go. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a farm. It's, um, it's a 140 year old homestead. And the the area that I live in, Ontario, is very economically depressed. Um, some people called it the Ozarks of Ontario, which might give you an idea. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, might give you a, a couple different ideas, actually, <laughs> some of which are a little offensive. But anyways, um, what it means is that I bought this farm. I'm the third owner, 150, 160 years now that I've been here. It was 140 when I bought it. Wow. So everything was still pretty intact, you know, and it was it was set up for um, uh, cattle and um, pork, like pigs, and things that I wasn't exactly doing because I was starting this herbal tea company when we moved here, and oh, right, so okay. it's hard to have uh, undulates like things that eat herbs and growing herbs at the same time. Maybe not the best combination. Right. So that's pretty much why we've kind of kept it to chickens and bees in terms of the the domestic animals that we keep. But, you know, this this place enabled us to kind of step into this other world in a way. Like, you know, our, our house is made from logs and the foundation's made from stones, both of which all would have been taken from an acre within an acre of this house. You know, so... Just even living in this kind of reality, uh, it, it just has such a different resonance. 
But then the things we do here, I mean, there's literally thousands of things. So if you kind of say, well, what are you doing? I'd have to tell you what I'm doing this week. Right. right? I know. Cause so this, this week, I'm tapping maple trees because mm-hmm. it's finally time. The sap's going to run. And we drink tons of the sap, too. It's incredibly nutritious. Oh, so I've before never actually had down, any raw sap myself. I've never, you know, because it, we were discussing before the call that, uh, before the interview, rather, that, um, you know, I live here in Central California, and I'm trying to figure out if there are any trees that, that in my area that we could tap. And Stephen was talking about sycamore trees. And, you know, I'm not, I'm still unfamiliar. Again, I'm a beginner at this, so I'm, I'm learning, and I don't know. But I'm going to look into that. But I've never personally drank the sap of, of any tree, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, they talk about it... Um... Uh, well, they used to talk about like cows and that they'd get their muzzle down in the buckets and drink all the sap from the trees, you oh. know, just cows that were wandering around and they'd become spirited is what they'd say, you know, the kicking up their heels kind of thing, right? Oh, so nice. this is what the sap does to you is it's, it's a very low amount of very absorbable sugar and then it's got all these other minerals uh, and I assume vitamins and enzymes and different things in it. I mean, it's a, it's truly a spring tonic. Ooh. So it helps cleanse your body and it helps revitalize yourself, you know. Oh, and, nice. uh, and each tree has its own time period too. So the trees that have more sugar, like the maples, are the first. Because the sugar is essentially an antifreeze, among oh. other things, for the tree. And then later, something like birch, just when maples are ending, birch start in because they have a much lower sugar content. So there's a lot more boiling involved, twice as much. It's 80 to 1 rather than 40 to 1 like it is for uh, the maple sap. And so all of these trees, and I'm sure there's trees down there and there's vines in the jungle and all of these things contain you know, this vital essence, this nutrients that feeds the trees that we can imbibe, imbibe, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, I just so recommend that because making maple syrup is kind of a big deal. You need lots of fuel, you need a pan, you need lots of time and all that stuff. But just tapping the maple tree out on your front lawn and drinking the, the sap from it is not a big deal, you know, and you can cook with it. Like just like you would use water, so huh. then all your foods infused, you can make incredible teas with it. Oh, you know like what? Is it sometimes teas? called maple water? Probably, yeah. Because uh, you know, I yeah. think I've seen it sold. I actually think I have. I seen... was going to say, if it's not a product, it will be after I, I, this. I was going to say, I think podcast. I have seen it. Yeah, it's called maple water. Okay, you know what? I'm gonna. I know. You know what? Now it's like I don't even know. After having this conversation, I don't even know if I want to go out there and buy a maple water product because it would be not being very respectful of the maple tree. But um, well, and maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. But you know what? It's it's been adulterated in some way because the one funny thing about sap is it goes bad oh, really quick. Thank, okay. So they'd have to add vitamin E or something else to it to as a if not a full on preservative. Oh, yeah, interesting. As a okay. All right, then, guys, never mind. If you have the ability to tap your own tree, please, um, and do it responsibly. Uh, if you don't, well, then you heard it from the man himself. Yeah, and I've tapped uh, birches and, and uh, sycamore, maple, uh, even soft maple. You know, it's, it's a very low percentage of sugar, but you can tap them all and drink it. And I know they have soft maples pretty far down there. Like it was telling you about this tour we did in the winter and they have soft maples down in Virginia for sure. Mm. And actually, yeah, quite a bit further, Georgia and maybe even Northern Florida. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, so that's one thing I'm doing. I'm, yeah, you I'm said last harvesting. week you were, uh, you were making baskets, right? Yeah, so that's what I was doing, and I'm still harvesting material for next year's baskets, right? Because um, it's just a good time. You can still get on out on the ice in the, the wetlands and uh, find places where the beavers have coppiced the trees, where they've oh. cut down the trees, and then you get a big lot of good first-year growth ones, nice long straight ones, and they're kind of the best. 
Uh, what else are we doing? I guess we could be preparing for uh, the chickens because the chickens are all starting to get broody. They sense a difference in the, the quality of light, the daylight hours, and mm-hmm. they want their chicks now. Oh, all right. You know, so that's kind of another thing where, uh, what else? Well, I've been working on the book a lot, so I don't know if that counts as a back to the land thing, but that's kind of what I'm doing with my time these days. And, um, you know, again, as soon as the ground unfreezes, then we start in with harvesting roots. So before they start to grow, things like burdock and yellow dock and dandelion and wild carrot and all of those are super sweet because, again, the winter makes them sweeter. They develop the sugars as kind of an antifreeze to preserve themselves. And so when you harvest anything, even carrots or or um, parsnips, if you leave them over, put a bit of mulch on them, leave them over in your garden over the winter, and you harvest them in the spring, they're so sweet. They're oh. incredible. Okay. So, and, that, and, you know, I do have a big swath of carrots and stuff, so as soon as that's, uh, you know, we're just running out of our, our root-stored uh, carrots. We still have a, you know, probably a half a bushel or something left. So that'll get us through to when we can dig up the ones uh, outside in the garden. Okay, nice. Sacred gardener philosophy is really, really intriguing to me. And um, I really do hope to have you on another, another episode very soon, but we're coming up on time. And if people are interested in learning more about what you do at Sacred Gardener, where can they reach you and find out more about some of the projects that you're working on right now? Uh, the sacredgardener.ca um, is is our website, and that pretty much has everything listed. Uh, this weekend, I'm doing a talk on Lyme a couple hours from here. I cured myself of Lyme using only herbs, so people are pretty interested in that. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll much. yeah maybe we'll want to talk about that on another episode. That's de- that's definitely definitely um. A huge topic, I know, for people that obviously love it being outside. Lime is huge, yeah. Yeah, it really is, you know, because it brings up all those things about our fears and our projections and, and um, yeah, and our, and our kind of knee-jerk reaction to stuff to, you know, just jump to antibiotics, jump to the big pharma mm-hmm. solution for everything. And in this particular case, it can often be a real disaster, you know. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's nice to get out and talk about it. I, I wouldn't want to become the Lyme guy because it is actually stressful talking about it. And you attract people who are who are really messed up right, a lot of the of time. Well, you know, things. we can so make I, that disclaimer yeah. too. You know, we can say that, you know, this is just a personal personal experience and this is just what has worked for you you know and this is just a tip it's not like you're the you're the lime or expert person online but you know if there is something that has worked for you i'm i guarantee you there's a lot of other people that are at least interested in hearing about it well for sure and i've kind of been in that world the limey world for enough years that i i mean i have a lot of clients um, in my herbal practice who have Lyme. Okay. And I can, even if they're not following my protocol or what I did, I can usually tweak what they're doing so that it's going to work better, you oh, know, because okay. it's a very, very complex disease for sure. Uh, and you know what? Um, also, are you on social media at all? <laughs> well, I guess in theory I am. Um, but I'll, I'll If people just wanted to, you know, hook up on Facebook or Twitter or whatever they're on, you know, if that's easier for them, are, are you on there? Yep. Yep, we are. We are. Okay, and that's at yeah, Sacred I, Gardener, I, not, just probably Sacred Gardener as well? Yep. Yeah, I'm not incredibly attentive to it, but if you have a little bit of patience, um, I will get back to you for sure. <laughs> Most definitely. Also, Stephen, if, if you know, I know there's so much more we can talk about, and I'm really excited to have you back on another episode because um, uh, you you have a lot of uh, I, I feel a lot of special knowledge to to give to us, and a lot that obviously I have uh, I have yet to learn. So I'm really excited about that. And is is there any parting? parting words that you'd like to leave with the audience? Well, you know, I think just that thing of, of um, you know, starting small, starting with 
what's right on your plate, what's right in front of you to do, and getting out there and doing it, you know? Like, it's great reading books and it's great watching YouTube videos and all that stuff, but it it ain't going to help, you know? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the books just sit on the shelf and who knows where that video is sitting in some cyberspace or something, but neither of them are are affecting this world, (laughs) this earth in a positive way. So you have to get out and, and act on what you know, you know, and really it's, it's a, it's a form of negligence to not be acting on what you know. So there's no real choice. We all have to do it. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Man, I just, I'm just still absorbing it all because I feel like I've, I've had a lot of questions answered for me during this episode. So, um, I'm really excited to have you back on to go further and deeper into this subject. So, uh, Stephen, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. And I really hope that, you know, we develop and further foster this relationship between us. And if there's anything that I can do for you in the future, I hope that you know that you can reach out to me. But guys, uh, that's it. That's that's um, that's today's episode of Ancestral Health Radio. I'm James the Hairless Ape Broderick, along with Stephen Martin of the SacredGardener.ca. We're signing out from Ancestral Health Radio, and until next time, remember to take a walk on the wild side. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating and review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com. 